0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Out of the Cave podcast. This podcast, you you could say it's about a lot of things, but really the real purpose of this podcast is a way for me to have conversations with people I find interesting and want to speak with. I've always been interested in what it means to be a man, personality, relationships, morality, the existence of God, and a bunch of other topics in that same vein. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations and take something away like I will. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. Dwight, thank you so much for being
1: here today. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you, Vince.
0: Yeah, we've known each other for uh, quite a few years now, and uh, actually interned with you in high school at the UMass uh, School of Law, which was a wonderful experience, opened my eyes to that whole sphere of things, and your professional career is a constitutional law professor. That's That's right,
1: right. yeah, Yeah. but don't hold that
0: against me. (laughs) So let's let's go back. I don't think we've ever talked about um, your upbringing. So let's just start start from the beginning. Tell me, tell everybody who Dwight Duncan is.
1: All right. Well, uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. in 1951 uh, under the Truman, <laughs> the Truman administration, uh, and uh, I uh, grew up in uh, a northern suburb of Washington. Called Rockville, Maryland, and uh, um, and then went back to Washington for high school at St. John's High School in on Military Road. It's actually it's a uh, Christian Brothers Military School, but it was of all the schools I've ever attended, the one I got the best education <laughs> from was was St. John, my high school actually. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, like last Friday, you know, we had a, a Zoom session with five of my classmates, you know, who I'm still in touch with. And it's just an impressive growing, mean, including one of my classmates, who's a friend, who's been a friend for 50 years, right, is is Robert Redfield. He's now famous or infamous as the head of the uh, Center for Disease Control, right? So he's been in the hot seats, you know, 24-7 since January 1st. But it was just interesting to talk to him for for a while and get his take on what's happening. But, uh but I'm saying it's a very impressive group of people. So I, I, I went to high school. Then I went <clears throat> then I uh you know went to Harvard in in nineteen sixty-nine and majored in, in classics, Greek and Latin, which was um which was interesting and fun. It was kind of a crazy time to be um in Cambridge. Um, you know, my freshman year was Kent State, which is when um some students were killed at a, in a kind of anti war protest in, 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 uh, at a university in Ohio. And as a result, pretty much students went on strike around the country at all colleges and universities. So, so essentially, my, my uh, exams, my final exams at the end of my freshman year, were all optional because <laughs> people took off and whatever did lobbying. I just remember my Greek professor pleading with us to sit for our exam in Greek A and uh, that wars came and go, but Greek remained. And, uh, and (laughs) I think it's actually pretty good advice in the sense that, you know, politics comes and goes, you know, and, and it's not, it's not to deny that these things are important, you know, and like currently we have the whole Black Lives Matter and, and whatnot you know kind of sweeping the country and you know and there's a certain amount of um, not just protest but even violence that's associated with it and the same was true you know when i was in college but but i'm saying those things come and go but there's still a value to be <laughs> to studying right and 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 not not necessarily directly engaging in political activity although there not that there's anything wrong with that you know kind of um, so anyway, I, so I, I graduated from college and then actually taught high school for a couple of years, and then went to law school at Georgetown in Washington, and um, and then practiced as an attorney in D.C. for several years with the what was then the Bell System. It was the, you know, uh, the local telephone company that was the subsidiary of Ma Bell. You know, it's all it was all broken up in a as a result of an antitrust suit that was brought actually when i was working there um so then i did other things you know i've done other things i've lived in new york for few, four years in the 1980s and and uh went to rome from 85 to 87 and got a, a, a degree or two in canon law which is the law of the catholic church and then i came back and eventually got a job at the school I'm at now I mean as a first as an adjunct in 1989 I guess and then as a full-time professor in 1990 so I've been there for 30 years. Ten years ago we be, that it was a, originally a freestanding private law school and we became UMass law school because Massachusetts was one of the few states that didn't have a public university law school so we became it and you know, which is both good news and bad news. I guess you know. <laughs> you know, the good news is we're now sort of an established uh, whatever center of legal education, not so fly by night. Uh, and the, the 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 bad news is that there's a certain bureaucracy associated with being a, a state institution, and you know, you you lose a certain flexibility, right? So now, for example, the Things like the First Amendment apply to our school because we're a governmental, you know, actor. We're a state actor, and so we have to. I don't know, freedom of religion. I mean, I can't start classes with a with a prayer because that would violate, you know, uh, Supreme Court precedent about separation of church and state, right, and stuff like that. Not that I did anyway when we were a private law school, but I'm just saying. You know, there are certain pluses and minuses associated with being a public institution, right? So,
0: Definitely. Yeah.
1: But, and so I'm, you know, for the past 30 years, I've taught constitutional law and I've dabbled in constitutional cases over the years. My most famous thing was 25 years ago, actually, in 1995, when I wrote the briefs at the U.S. Supreme Court in the, in the St. Patrick's Day Parade case out of Boston, and we won a unanimous... Uh, First Amendment decision saying that private parade organizers can control the content of their parade. So that basically some group that Has some different message. You don't have to You don't have to carry them right you (laughs) that you have the parade permit and, and basically it's your it's your speech, right? It's your message and so that was an important precedent in some ways, and it's, And I think it's become more important with time, uh, because this issue of compelled speech, right, government forcing people to say things they don't agree with, that's kind of increasingly important, right, that people be able to, you know, just say, you know, I'm not, I don't believe that, I'm not going to say it, right, I'm not going to do it, I, you know, I think that's important, actually, in terms of just respect for conscience, and and respect for freedom of religion, right, and and freedom of speech. Uh, so, I mean, one of the interesting things now and why the Constitution law is quite central is, um, you know, it's, it's like, as Americans, you know, it's, we don't have a common um, ethnic identity, really, right? We have people from all over, right? It's like the pluribus unum, right? We're one from many, right? But But I'm saying a lot of different races, a lot of different creeds, right, religions, uh, you know, just a lot of immigrants, a lot of, you know, people that have been around longer, they're Native Americans, you know, African Americans, right, it's, it's quite a mix, and so the point is, as Americans, what we have in common, what defines us in some ways as a nation and as a people, is our adherence to the Constitution and the rule of law, right, that that's really what makes us special in a way, right, and, and, uh, so I guess um I guess I just think it's important, and uh, you know I'm glad to to kind of try to spread the word of you know adherence to the constitution and the rule of law. That's not to say that the Constitution or the laws are perfect, they're not and you know and and, and historically, there have been some problems like the original in some ways the original sin of this country was you know uh, the recognition of slavery in our original constitutional compact right and it took a civil war and 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 three constitutional amendments to try to undo that right after this right after the civil war and 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 in some ways we're still living with the legacy of of that history but the good thing about it is you know that the whole premise of the rule of law is that our differences can be resolved you know peaceably uh without violence um you know through hopefully the use of reason and and uh you know, public discourse, right? That, we, that, that and we also learn how to, you know, obviously we, you know, people have different values and different ideas about how to live and, and, and fine. I think, you know, and we can, we can disagree about public policy, about whatever. I mean, I you know, without being disagreeable, that is we can, you know, still, I mean, I, like one of the things, I, the older I get, the more I value friendship you know, personal friendship. And I find I can be friends with pretty much anybody, hopefully, I mean, uh, at least anybody that will have me as a friend. I mean that, um, and, you know, I don't necessarily agree with people on their politics or their religion, or, you know, we might have rather fundamental disagreements. It doesn't, at some some level, it doesn't matter, right? In other words, I can still love you and we can still have, you know, a, a respectful kind of friendship without without agreeing on everything. And I think this is one of the dangers of this cancel culture that we find ourselves in at the moment. It's like, you know, um, I don't agree with somebody and therefore I have to defriend them on Facebook, right? Or, right? It's like, and I'm saying, no, I don't think, I mean, I don't agree with this idea that the personal is political, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't think that's right. I think it's actually important to distinguish between the personal and the political, right? Because Otherwise, you're making a kind of idol out of, out of politics, right? Everything becomes, you know, subject to politics. Uh, the same could happen with religion, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a fanatic or intolerant or whatever. But I, I'm saying I don't, those are not – those attitudes are actually deeply un-American, actually, I think, right? It's like the whole, the whole point of the First Amendment was to say, hey, freedom of religion, freedom of speech – Okay, we can we can live together, you know, and in, in, in peacefully coexist, and we don't necessarily have to agree, right? I mean, uh, and uh, I don't know. I just think it's an interesting, you know. I, today I got the <clears throat> on my Kindle. There's a there's a new book called The Essential Scalia, right? And and it's it seems like a really interesting book. I just read the foreword and the preface. You know, the foreword is by Justice Elena Kagan, right? Who <clears throat> former Harvard Law dean, she's a liberal on the court, right? But she was good friends with Scalia, as is as was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, for, for decades, Scalia and, and, and Ginsburg would go to the opera together. I mean, they, they both sort of liked the opera, right? Um, and, uh, you know, Scalia actually taught Justice Kagan how to shoot, right? Shoot a rifle. <clears throat> now, in terms of their—they didn't agree about much in terms of, like— the law and jurisprudence, and what they're gonna. But they were friends, right? And and that comes out in in the preface, and it's I, I think that's actually a good thing, right? That that people can be friends, I mean, uh, in spite of their, you know, their ideological or intellectual or political or religious differences, right? I mean, um, uh, anyway, I just think it's interesting, right? I, I, and I also think that the opposite can be true, right? You can have people that you agree with about virtually everything, political and or religious, and you still, there's something about them that rubs you the wrong way. I mean, you shouldn't I mean, I don't, you know, it's just, it's an interesting thing. It's almost like a chemical thing, you know, some people you click with and other people you don't particularly, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm saying, I think you should try to click with everybody, you know, and, you know, listen to, know how to listen. I, I, I do think listening is important, so I should shut up and let you talk, Vince. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, I think what you're saying is really true, especially today. It's the the divide the between the political and the personal has been blurred, and you are what you think, and I think social media is fueling that to a large extent, but it seems to be breaking down that, yeah, what you said, it's wholly un-American, right? We We can't live together now if we don't agree and it's becoming this division like we saw you know pre-civil war of the north versus the south but now it's you know the cities versus the country or however you want to frame it right Uh, and we're having this like. right i'm actually
1: i'm a little i'm I'm quite concerned about what's going to happen you know in the wake of the election right because it seems like this is going to be a you know it's it's going to a very contested election, and it may take significant time, actually, to count the votes with the with the mail-in and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just afraid that pe- some people are just impatient with the process and at the legal process, and they're just going to take to the streets and try to essentially battle it out in the streets, in which case we'll have some kind of civil war, right? I mean, uh, I, which I don't think that's not that's not a good thing. I mean, obviously. And, uh, so, um, anyway, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting moment. It's somewhat of a dangerous moment, actually, I think, right. Um, hopefully calm, calmer, cooler heads will prevail and, you know, we'll have, uh, we'll have a peaceful transition of power, what, what you know, which whatever way it turns out, right. I mean, <laughs> you know, to another Trump administration or to a, uh, Biden administration, so we'll see. Um,
0: What do you think is really fueling this divide um, and and kind of the breakdown of the Constitution and the rule of law? People don't really seem to think. You you have the conservatives who hold the Constitution up as like this is what we 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 believe in, and then uh, I think the stereotype of, of the liberal is that they well the Constitution was for a time and place and it's not for today, and I think that could be. The, the backing of some of these ideas, but they're now, you know, they're fueled by this political tension that that it is, you know, of this moment. Um, what do you, how do you think that, like, wh- what do you think that looks like?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think one one issue that is related to the Constitution has to do with the Electoral College, right? The fact that we have this peculiar feature that, it, it, that the, the vote, you know, that the president is decided not by the popular vote, but, but by the Electoral College. And you know, last time, right, Hillary Clinton got a majority of the popular vote, but she didn't win the electoral college, right, because that's the way our constitutional system works, right, and um, the same thing happened, I think, in, well, in 2000, right, with the Bush v. Gore uh, election, so we've had several instances in our history where the, you know, the popular Vote getter did not prevail in the electoral college, so I think some people are very impatient with that, and they they basically say, "Hey, you know, it's like it should be uh, winner take all, <laughs> and uh, you know, it should simply be a matter of the democratic vote, right?" And and I, I I'm saying I don't know, I don't think that's that's not constitutional, right? You'd need a constitutional amendment to do that, um, and I my sense of it is. It, it's, it'd be extremely difficult to get such a constitutional amendment because in order to get the constitutional amendment, you know, article five, of the constitution sets out the procedure for amending the constitution, right? It can either be, but, but be a, a constitutional convention, which has never happened since the original constitution was adopted. You know, and at, at this week, you know, September 17th is constitution day because that's the day in 1787 when the Constitutional convention presided over by George Washington in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, basically made public their, their summer work, which was to draft the constitution, right? And um, so the the point is though, the procedure for amending the constitution in, in article five essentially says you need two thirds of both houses of Congress and three quarters of the states, right? Now, I think it's gonna be, you, I, I think it's gonna be difficult to get the two thirds of both houses of Congress given that Congress is fairly Evenly divided between the two parties, whether whichever party is is in control of which out is and now it's split right between the Senate and the House, but even if The Democrats controlled the House and the Senate, they would still have a hard time getting a two thirds majority if the Republicans were against it, right, which I think at this juncture seems likely, but I don't know. Um, And then, but the thing that I think is really difficult to achieve is the three quarters of the states right because All the smaller states are not going to agree to give up their power in the Electoral College, because what that would mean is that presidential elections would be decided by the vote in New York and California and maybe Texas. I'm saying they're really populous states. And so they wouldn't campaign in places like New Hampshire or, you know, the flyover country. You know, maybe in Chicago, they would because of the numbers. But I'm saying they wouldn't in Iowa or in and so you you're not going to get the smaller states, I think to sign off to change the the system because it would change not just the result of the election but in fact the whole way in which people are elected right that they wouldn't campaign they wouldn't even bother to campaign in this in the states you know if if they didn't have significant numbers of people right so i don't know it's I think it's complicated, so I think that's one of the things that sort of maybe fueling a kind of exasperation with our constitutional system, right? The sense that somehow we need a revolution, a new American revolution kind of thing. And um, this is why I'm a big fan of the musical Hamilton, partly because, you know, the great thing about that show is it's a brilliant show. And I, I've seen it four times now since it's been available on Disney Plus, you know, the original cast kind of recording of them. But, but in any case, you know, the, the point there is that you know, the founding of the country through the American Revolution and the Constitution um, and the first elections are all dealt with in that musical, right? And they have basically minorities, blacks and Hispanics, playing all the major founding fathers and mothers' roles. You know, the the white guy, you know, it, who, who's in the cast basically plays George III, who's kind of a, a comic, almost a comic figure, right? So, the thing that, one of the things I think is great about that musical is it's a way of getting, you know, the, 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 the minorities, right, uh, to identify with the, with the founding fathers, you know, with somebody like Alexander Hamilton, right? Alexander Hamilton was not, you know, I mean, he was kind of a capitalist, right? He was he's a free market kind of a guy. Uh, but also, he also believed in, in, a, in a powerful central government and a strong president and things like this. And I'm saying, um, but he was definitely a rule of law person, right? Uh and the constant, he and James Madison, the really the father of the constitution, and, and John Jay wrote the Federalist papers, right? And um sort of defending our system of government, which admittedly is not perfect, but I mean, if, I don't want to live in any other system, right? And in, in in any in any other place. I, you know, I spent a couple years abroad, you know. Uh, <laughs> My younger years, but and 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 I enjoy visiting exotic foreign places, you know. But, but I don't want to live there. I mean, I, I'd rather live anywhere in the United States than pretty much anywhere outside the United States. And part of that, a big part of that, has to do with our, you know, system of, of government and laws and, you know, uh, the constitutional framework and, and there is a there is a mechanism for changing, right, and for for improving. And I think honestly, we have made significant Improvements over the course of time. Not everything is an improvement, but but I'm saying, like in the whole racial area, obviously the abolition of slavery, right? And uh, you know, in the 13th Amendment, right, in 1865, or uh, or the 14th Amendment that you know said states can't deprive people of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. I mean, these these are these are important milestones, right, on the path to kind of liberty and equality. And, uh, and uh, okay, there's, we still have a ways to go, but the point is we've made significant progress. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, and which culminated in the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, these are really important milestones, you know, getting rid of, largely getting rid of, um, you know, the the horrifying practice of lynching, right? Which had been all too frequent in, in particularly in the South, right? Um, through, through half of the 20th century, right? I mean, stuff like that. So we have made progress. It's not like, you know, it's not like it's all just, I don't know, it's not all oppression. And, and the, the other thing, if you consider kind of the role that this country played in something like the Second World War, you know, where we really did, you know, beat back you know, totalitarian Nazism and you know, and fascism and Japanese militarism. I mean, I'm just saying, that was that was a good not just for us. It was a good for the whole world, right? Not to fall under that yoke. Um, so, so okay. I mean, I, I, like I say, it's we're not perfect, but we're trying, and and uh, you know. I guess violence is not the answer,
0: right? Yeah, it's it's starting to seem like we've kind of lost that identity as Americans, and we're almost. Uh, it seems like there's some factions in, within the United States that are embracing this um, idea of uh, radical um, radicalism, I guess you could say, like the overthrow of government to the the almost a dictator or or uh, you know a one party system.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, where person. hatred of America becomes kind of the guiding motif, in it. and it just seems to, to me, it seems to be destructive in nature rather than constructive, right? There, It's not like what they're proposing. You know, some people will say, well, socialism, you know, but I mean, you look around like Cuba or Venezuela, these are places where socialism has been tried and found wanting, right? So one of the disturbing things, I think, is that who knows this historical naivete right that people somehow think that um you know somehow it's going to be different this time right or i don't know and and I'm saying I don't think so right i i think unfortunately there is this there is original sin right there is this tendency that we all have to kind of you know to 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 corrupt and you know to 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 get off the the, the tried-and-true virtuous path, I think, uh, you know, um, but I'm just babbling.
0: Uh, That's great. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely concerned about the upcoming election, <clears throat> especially what we've talked about with the Electoral College, and you can see the 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 political divide on the use of, you know, mail-in val- mail ballots uh, versus, you know, going into voting at the polls, um, the potential politicalization of this pandemic Uh, so
1: there's some of these things going on yeah i was struck by you know the, the head of the los angeles public school system basically said we're not going back in person until election day right in other words what does election day have to do with a public health decision you know i mean it's clear there it becomes you know the the political motive becomes paramount, right? And people are always accusing Trump of doing this, and the CDC or the FDA, right, of caving into political pressure, right? But I, I think you know the political thing is is clearly present on both sides, right? And and uh, and I, you know, it's unfortunate, but but I think this thing has been, you know, everything that happens in election year is politicized. In fact, right? So. I think that's what we've been seeing with COVID and response to COVID. I don't think, you know, in some ways, I don't think this is a healthy thing, right? I don't think everything is, po- like I say, I don't think everything is political, right? <laughs> I mean, health should be a distinct category, right? And, and, uh, you know, um, anyway. So, and, and and I think I think one of the interesting things about COVID, to, from my perspective, is like how different people's reactions are, right? I mean. You know, I think I tend to be, you know, sort of optimistic and not really, not really fear kind of COVID or I'm, you know, personally, I feel like I'm done with COVID and it may not be done with me, but I'm done with it. And, and the, the fact is you got to dive something, it might as well be COVID, you know, but, but I mean, but, but, I, you know, I know a couple of my sisters are not this way. They're very kind of nervous and everything is, you know, kind of quarantined and, Shut down, and I always totally respect that, right? I mean, I just think people are different, but I don't think it actually—I don't think, it, in fact, it's really particularly related to whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whether you like Trump or don't. You know, I—I I mean, I think there has been a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a alignment along those, <laughs> along those, you know, paths, but I, actually, I, don't, I think they are really quite, quite distinct. You know, so. Yeah.
0: Do you think uh, that tr- the Trump era? Trump has kind of brought in this whole new wave of almost a new party in a way. He doesn't really represent the the Republican Party, and you see people from the left and from the right coming to join him. So he kind of, I think he's representational of this movement within the country. Uh, Do you think that's going to change kind of the future of our nation, potentially like the two-party system that we've had in the past? Like, how do you think that might play out?
1: yeah I think it could i mean I just think Trump is such an anomaly. I mean, I think in our history, we've never had a president quite like Trump. I mean, maybe maybe the closest would be somebody like Andrew Jackson, but even Andrew Jackson I think wasn't so wasn't quite so out of the box, right I mean, you didn't have these crazy tweets coming constantly, you know, and uh I do think with Trump, you do have to distinguish between his what he says and tweets, right, and what he actually does, I think it's important, to, you know, in terms of public policy, right, so, I mean, he tweets a lot of stuff that I think is really not very defensible, it's it's maybe entertaining or whatever, but it's, it, you know, in terms of, like, policy position, it's just not, it's not serious, and I don't think, I, in some ways, I don't think it's actually intended to be serious, I think it's just intended to get you know, to distract or to kind of amuse. Um, I mean, like one of the things, one of the characteristics of Trump is, I think he can be funny. You know, he's a New Yorker, so he can be funny. Um, the pro- from my perspective, the problem with him is, he actually prefers being nasty. He's kind of, he has a nasty streak, right? So, and that being nasty is not a very good quality in a public figure, I don't think, because it just, it poisons the atmosphere, right? I mean, there are all sorts of people that hate Trump, just because he's not, you know he's kind of gratuitously nasty right i mean i remember in 2016 i you know at one, somebody tweeted about miss miss america being too fat and something like this and my reaction to that was you know i i'm not going to vote for him now right and I, I didn't vote for hillary you know i actually b- voted for a former student of mine but wrote it wrote it in wrote, he didn't win but um <laughs> but uh you know it's like I don't, you know, this is crazy. It is kind of crazy, right? I mean, and so, but I do think you have to distinguish between what he actually does. You know, like he, he'll he he'll make a lot of threats to the press or to CNN or whatever. But in terms of actually threatening freedom of the press, you know, through governmental action, I mean, you know, no journalists are in jail or, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's all bullshit, um, whatever, whatever. Uh,
0: yeah no there seems to Appletosh, be you know, <laughs> so. yeah There's there seems to be that disconnect, uh, like what we were talking about earlier, um, separating policy uh, or politics from the, the person it 's separating the policy that he actually is doing, which seems to be what the defenders of trump are 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 you know talking about now, like look at all of the things he 's done, and right. then the people on who are, you know hate Trump or are opposed to Trump are just talking about all the. The negative aspects of him or uh, things that he said, you know, as like the backing of, it seems to me, the backing of most of their arguments against Trump. Like right. he's a nasty man. Right. Um, yeah. They, how do you think we separate, like, we, we, like you just mentioned, the policy? Like, how do we look at the policy more objectively, especially from a constitutional
1: standpoint? Well, you know, I. I know this isn't the sort of the standard view, but I, you know, I I must admit, I've been actually quite impressed with Attorney General Barr. I think he's good, you know? And I mean, he's totally maligned by the media, major media, right? But I think he's, you know, he's a serious legal, you know, kind of a guy. And I think he's doing his best with a kind of uh, difficult situation. And, you know, I I think he's basically, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think he's trying to, navigate in through these trying times. And I feel the same way about my friend who's the head of the CDC, right? I mean, yeah, there's a lot, you know, it's an impossible I I think basically these are impossible jobs these days, right? Uh but, you know, I think these are people of goodwill who are trying to do their best and, you know, and and more power to them. They're they, they, a little bit they're in positions where whatever way they come down, they're going to be criticized, right? And and uh you know, they just have to do their best, and one hopes it is. I don't know. You know, one one hopes it works. But we'll well, it's,
0: yeah, it's. I think it's. We're in a a critical moment for the union, um, especially if you. I mean, the past tends to be the a good predictor for the future. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're seeing kind of a, a similar turmoil to what we saw, you know, prior to the Civil War with, the the, the anger. Yes. coming from both sides and the division along a distinct line of thought and one of the i think one of the main like i think we, we kind of touched on it earlier is the idea of uh, socialism especially brought out by the pandemic right universal health care which it, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people seem to be behind now and uh, and um Especially with the handouts from the government—not to call them handouts, of course—we we needed those. People were, you know, desperate for food and for other things. Um, but those seem to be, you know, we're moving. It seems towards that kind of a an economy in the United
1: States. Right, and then you have the Squad, right? These young members of Congress, led by AOC, and um, that I don't know, supporting things like the Green New Deal and. You know, and socialism in general, right? I mean, and and universal healthcare—it sounds really good. I mean, I'm I'm all in favor of everybody having healthcare, right? Adequate healthcare. But the problem is, you know, it's like at some point, it isn't just a question of government spending, right? That is, it's somebody has to pay the bill eventually, right? Otherwise, we're going to end up with, if the government is just printing money to pay for all this stuff. Uh, we're going to end up with runaway inflation, like they have in Venezuela. You know, where the price of a, a cup of coffee increases from one million pesos to five million pesos in the course of two hours. Right? I mean, I, at some point, it becomes totally unsustainable, like it, like like the inflation they had in in Weimar Germany, that sort of paved the way for the rise of Hitler. Right? At some point, I don't know. You know, it. I mean, it's like government spends a trillion dollars here, a trillion dollars there, you know, because of the coronavirus, right, and, and I'm, I'm with the best of intentions, but pretty soon it begins to add up, you know, I mean, you know, it's no longer chump change, I mean, at some point, somebody's gonna have to pay this, I think, and, you know, which means taxes, which means, I don't know what it means, but I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm really not an economist, but I just, I'm, I'm concerned, right, that something. Somebody, you know, you don't get something from nothing, right? And 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 the fear is that I don't know. You at some point you just have to say, how are we going to pay for this? I mean, I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, it seems like a, it 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 seems like it could shake the the fabric of the Constitution, of you know what the country is actually made of. Uh, and break that down like, yeah, like what you just said about like pre-Hitler uh, in Germany with the inflation. Either we have this social turmoil that boils over into something similar to that, or we have such an inflated currency that we're no longer investable as a country, right?
1: Right. And there's yeah, nobody I mean, to pay it off. Yeah. I mean, the, the the good thing about our private enterprise system, you know, which admittedly is you know, regulated by government to avoid whatever you know the robber bar- excesses of the robber barons and that sort of thing, or exploiting labor and all these kinds of things, right? Um, but at some point, I don't know. You know, it's um, if you, if you get rid of that private enterprise system, you know, and and everything becomes free. You know, college tuition is free, healthcare is free. You know, and, and my point is those things are going to deteriorate in quality because there's no longer anybody who really cares to, you know, to to do a good job, right? Because nothing, because they're not going to lose anything if they don't. I, I don't know. I, I, I just, um, I'm not an economist, so I'm, I'm punning on this. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right, though. I think it does
0: deteriorate the uh, the quality and so whatever, yeah. Yeah, the quantity increases, but the quality decreases, and we have to decide what we what we actually desire as a country. Well, let's shift gears a little bit now. Um, so, one of the main cases that you've been working on here. Uh, so, well, first, let's talk. You write amicus briefs for those who yeah, don't know. Yeah, lately I've
1: been writing amicus briefs or, or really organizing students to write amicus briefs, because law professors are great at taking credit for other people's work. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I had a hand in it, but I'm just saying, you know, in, in fact, but this past term, I had a couple of amicus briefs in religious freedom cases, one involving the Little Sisters of the Poor, the other involving uh, the Montana Blaine Amendment. I don't know if you know what Blaine Amendments are, but basically there are features of like 37 state constitutions that essentially prohibit government funds, public funds going directly or indirectly to support what's called sectarian education or sectarian schools. Now, it turns out these things all originated in the last half of the 19th century as as sort of a wave of kind of anti-Catholicism in the country, right? It was kind of nativism, you know, the first of these Blaine amendments. It was was even before Blaine himself, but it was in Massachusetts in the 1850s when the so-called know-nothings took over the state legislature and and the governorship. And the know-nothings were basically anti-immigrant, particularly anti-Irish in those days, but anti-Catholic as well. And they got the name know-nothing because it was a secret society. And when they were asked what they were all about, they would they were supposed to say that they knew nothing, right? Um, uh, in other words, lied. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so Montana had one of these. Like I say, uh, you know, two thirds of the states have these Blaine amendments, right? Uh, and uh, they they didn't. It didn't make the federal constitution. It wasn't a federal constitutional amendment. It was basically a state constitutional amendment. So. Montana had one, and on the basis of that, the Montana Supreme Court said that, you know, once the Montana legislature established a, uh, like a, a, a tax credit for um, private schools, uh, that that could not be applied to a, an evangelical you know, school because to do so would violate the Blaine Amendment, you see. And the Supreme, so, so I had a group of Harvard Law students that was terrific that wrote this wonderful brief uh, showing the anti-Catholic nature of these Blaine Amendments. And on that basis, um, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court's ultimate decision in the case, uh, in an opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts, said that if, if states have systems of aid like vouchers or tuition tax credits for private education, they cannot then exclude religious schools as beneficiaries of those programs. Because if they did, that would be an anti-religious motive or animus, and therefore it would be prohibited by the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment that applies to the states via the 14th Amendment. So, I mean, all that's kind of legal gobbledygook, but, but <laughs> The basic point is we won the case against the Blame Amendment, right? And the other case was a case I've been actually involved with for, I don't know, six or seven years. It was the Little Sisters of the Poor case that you mentioned. And there I represented um, a group of uh, residents and families of residents at homes of Little Sisters of the Poor around the country. Basically, these are elderly people, some of whom are, you know, um, senile or you know, kind of uh, incapacitated, who were taken care of by the nuns. And basically, one of the features of uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care Act, right, uh, that's been around since 2010, required them, because they have more than, I guess, 50 employees around the country, required them to provide free contraceptives to any employee, right? And the irony is, even though this lawsuit has been going on for years and years, not one such employee has come forward saying, hey, I want those free contraceptives at the nun's expense, right? So in other words, at some point, it just becomes a pure religious test that the government is essentially saying, little sisters, you have to accept, you know, contraception, you know, you have to provide free contraception. And they said, we can't because it violates our religion, right? because these nuns are Catholic and they subscribe to Catholic teaching about abortion and contraception being wrong. And so so anyway, the, that case actually was a seven to two win at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and then one nice thing was the, the brief I wrote with a couple of BC law students was um, um, not just cited by uh, Justice, Clarence Thomas in his majority opinion for the court, but it was also quoted. So that's the first time it was quoted in the Supreme Court decision. Which is very exciting. Oh, it's kind of nice. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) um, but uh, and in the other case, the uh, Montana case, it's called uh, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. Um, It's another important case, the Blaine Amendment case. In that case, Justice Alito cited the brief I filed on behalf of the uh, Pioneer Institute here in Massachusetts, in his concurrence, right? So it wasn't in the majority opinion, but it, but it was it was cited. So anyway, just just to indicate that filing amicus briefs is not a totally futile act. I mean, sometimes it has some some payback or something, some you know some effect. Hopefully, I don't know. However, minimal
0: yeah for those who don't know, could you explain what an amicus brief is, and then like how do you formulate one and then and, and send it to the court
1: yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know obviously, normally in cases you know the supreme court and for that matter, any federal court requires a case or controversy right which means they have to have actual parties who are who's, who who have a dispute that's alive right that that, that uh, is is a hot kind of thing you know a real dispute and um they bring a lawsuit and thus the, the case comes before the court, you know, either the trial court or on, or on appeal, either to the federal appeals court or ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, if you're a party, obviously, you know, you, you know, you can raise issues, things like that. Well, in addition to that the parties and their briefs, which are the most important thing about the case, I think, right, in terms of legal argument, you also have outside, Interests, right? <laughs> uh, groups, well, oftentimes non-governmental organizations that want to weigh in on the legal issue, right? And and sort of, and they're called friends of the court, and and with the court's permission, and usually with the permission of the parties, they can f- make a filing on one side or the other, in supporting one side or the other of the case, right? And so that's what I've been doing. Tend to. Lately, and it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a type of pro bono work, right? I mean, it's like I don't get compensated for this other than just ego. Um, but uh, um, but anyway, it's 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 picking and choosing cases and issues that you believe in, right? One uh, one way or another. I mean, one of the nice things about being a law professor is that I can pick and choose which cases to get involved in. It's not you know I'm, I get my salary from my teaching, however however that is, and, uh, um, but I don't have to make my living by you know, representing clients in court, so I can pick and choose cases that I volunteer to, to try to help on one side or the other, you know? and, and usually it's some issue that I believe in, like involving freedom of speech or freedom of religion, and in these last two cases we've talked about, uh, or in years past, it's been pro-life or um, things like that.
0: Yeah, you do some fantastic work there too, especially the uh, Little Sisters of the Poor Case. That was very exciting. Got to see, uh, you got quoted (laughs) by Clarence Thomas. Very exciting.
1: Yeah, well, he happens to be my favorite justice actually. So that was kind of a bonus. There's this this amazing new documentary about him. um, uh, that was shown on PBS during the summer, it's two hours. I think it's called like Created Equal or Something like that, and it's really good. I'm just saying it's fascinating. Even if you don't agree with Thomas and his particular perspective, right? It's a fast. He's a fascinating figure, right? And it's just interesting, you know? and uh, it's different. I don't know.
0: Yeah, he he is definitely uh, an interesting justice. Speaking of justices. W- in the last what, two years uh, justice ruth bader ginsburg has been having a lot of health concerns which i think mm-hmm. scare a lot of people that you know she was going to step down or die before the end of the first trump administration and now coming up to the second administration um, what do you think if if the court uh, falls under another trump administration and
1: um yeah no it's down, an interesting yeah. thing i you know um Uh, I, you know, it's, it seems like the most liberal justices are the oldest justices, like starting with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, um, I don't think she's going to retire. I think basically, you know, you know, they'll have to carry her out, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, I wish that on her, but I'm just saying, you know, come eventually all of us have to die, you know, so so at some point she's going to die and and then the question is who's going to point her replacement and you know if trump is reelected trump will do it and if if biden is is, is elected instead then biden will do it well i think he'll get quite different you know very different nominees right trump just listed uh, just uh, made public an ex- expanded list of the of the, you know the people that he's likely to draw from in, in appointing the next uh, associate justice of the Supreme Court. So, um, but you'll have, it'll be very different. And then I suppose the other thing that's up for grabs this election is the control of the Senate, right? Because whoever is nominated in the Supreme Court will need um, majority Senate approval to be confirmed. So if the Senate, you know, changes hands and, and is on, on, has a Democratic majority they could have effectively stop, uh, you know, a Trump nominee that is not to their liking, right? So um, that will change the dynamic, you know, cause I mean, Trump has had two picks so far, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And, you know, the, the Kavanaugh thing was incredibly contentious, right? He eventually was, was confirmed. But I suspect the next, I mean, if, if Trump has the next pick, uh, uh, I think it's going to be, it's, it'll make the Kavanaugh thing look like a picnic. I, You know, it's like in comparison, it's going to be pretty tough, I think, uh, because so much is, is at stake. Um,
0: yeah, what do you think, how do you, well, let me say this. How do you think the, if a Trump nominee were to get in, how would that affect the balance of power within the court as it is right now?
1: Well, I think it would make it more conservative. Right now, there's a bare, five to four, slightly conservative majority, but Chief Justice Roberts seems to have inherited the role that that Justice Anthony Kennedy had been occupying, which is the swing vote, right? So he's a guy who is not a reliable conservative vote, actually. Um, So I think if some, you know, if the court's most liberal member is probably Ginsburg or Sotomayor, right? If either of those leaves the court and is, and 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 it, her successor is appointed by Trump, you can expect the court to to be much more conservative. I think, notably more conservative, um, and uh, you know because then Roberts would not be the swing vote anymore. I don't think, right? Uh, so so we'll see. I I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work out. You know. Um, you know, I, I wish I could foresee the future, but I, I I don't have that skill.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely a, I think that's also why this election is so contentious, especially since the, the Senate could change, the right. president could change, and we could get a new um, justice for the Supreme Court. Yeah, no, I think
1: that's right. I think that's a big, that's a big thing. I mean, uh, in some ways, I don't think that, th- my own sense of it is, I don't think things should be this way in the sense that, I honestly don't think that justices should be deciding all these cases, you know, they don't, the constitution does not have a ready answer to every case, right? And so I, I think one of the mistakes the justices made in 1973 with, the, is with Roe versus Wade was to basically say that the constitution dictated a result in the abortion, you know, area, right? And I think, the, I think actually the truth is the Constitution doesn't really say anything about abortion, one way or the other, which would be an argument to leave it to the political branches, that is the legislature and the executive, right? To decide and once you decide it as a matter of constitutional law, of course, you have cut off any possibility of reasonable compromise, right? Everything becomes a matter of right, right? And, and they, you know, it's, it's a winner take all kind of thing. And I just think it's not, I guess what I'm saying is, I think if the constitution doesn't say anything, if the constitution doesn't settle it, then, then it should be up to the political process, right? To work out some kind of a, of a deal, right? And, and, but once you make it a matter of constitutional right, the political process is totally sh- short circuited. And I think one of, the, one of the things that I'm worried about in, in, our, in our, you know, in, in Congress is in some ways that Congress has become largely dysfunctional. And and part of that has to do with the polarization of the parties and the partisanship and, you know, take an example would be like the problem with with immigration law, right? I think everybody recognizes that the immigration law needs to be reformed, right? We need a more realistic um, immigration law, right? Uh, And, but... I think my sense of it is that the parties prefer to kind of pander to their bases, right, rather than to work out a reasonable compromise, right, that's that's workable, right. So the result is the result is the immigration laws is you know it's 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 broke. It, it, the system is kind of broken, but neither party, Congress, is not seemed to be willing to fix it, right. And I think this is a problem, right, because it. It really, it has to come from Congress. But I think part of it is, you know, these politicians, they don't want to take stands on controversial issues, because, you know, they want to basically, I don't know, please everybody, right? And I'm saying, I think some of these issues, you can't please everybody. And so the result has been the courts end up deciding these things, even though the legal warrant for the courts deciding, and I think, is very thin, right? I mean, there's more an argument for the president to decide it, but even then, it's like, uh, under both Obama and Trump, we've had this growth of kind of executive government by executive decree and order, right? And I, the problem with that is that doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really solve the problem because, you know, it. The, the, whoever succeeds him can undo it. I mean, almost every executive order Obama issues was out undone by Trump. And if Biden is elected, he'll do the same thing with Trump's executive orders, right? So I'm just saying, unless you have laws passed by Congress and the you know, Congress operating in some kind of reasonable bipartisan way, right? Which is what you need to get legislation passed, right? You're, you're gonna have a problem, I think. Um,
0: yeah, it's, we have this whole problem like what you mentioned the ruling from the bench, you know, unelected judges making decisions that are not necessarily in line with the constitution. Then we also have, you know, career politicians like you said who are pandering to their to their bases just to stay elected. What do you think about like setting term limits on on members of Congress and also like I think a lot of people yeah. I'm a fan of it
1: actually, uh, although uh um, the problem is for the uh, national legislature, it would require a constitutional amendment. Um, you know, so, but but I, I and, and I think, I don't, I don't think that's, that would be easy to achieve, but, you know, basically because professional politicians don't want term limits, right? I mean, and even the ones who say they'll abide by term limits, usually when the term expires, they they, they find a reason to stay on, right? It's like feeding at the public trough becomes too attractive a possibility, and so we have these I don't know. I just I like the example of George Washington, right? I mean, he stepped away voluntarily from being head of the army, you know, at the end of the American Revolution. His famous Founts Tavern speech, you know, and then and then he he basically, you know, announced he wasn't running again after the end of his second term, right? And 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 pretty much every president respected, you know, having two terms until Franklin Roosevelt became president, and we were on the eve of. World War II, and he managed to be elected for four terms, but he died shortly after the fourth term began and Harry Truman became president, which is where I came in on this conversation. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, the result of that was Congress passed and the states ratified a constitutional amendment giving a term limit to the president, right? it's uh, like maximum two terms, right? That's it. And then you're out. And I think that's probably a good thing, right? That somehow, You know, I mean, part of the thing is actually has to do with how important notions of public service and the common good are, right, in in political life. And my sense of it is most politicians, those notions of public service and common good, they will give lip service to them. But in fact, they're just careerists. They're interested in advancing their own career, right? I mean, who's going to be the next... You know, c- campaign contributor, right? It's like, or, or uh, you know, what kind of retirement pension can they vote themselves? You know, this kind of thing. And I'm just saying, I, I don't, I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be, right? I don't think the founding fathers were that way, particularly. I mean, yeah, they were, you know, they they had their eyes on the prize, but still, I'm saying they were more far-seeing than that, right? People like Madison and and Hamilton and even Jefferson. <laughs> you know, we're, yeah, and certainly Washington had this sense of, you know, they were they were trying to serve the people, you know, and um, and not just themselves. It wasn't just a self-service kind of a line, you know, and uh, so this is why I'm anxious for you to become 35, then so I can vote for you for president. I mean, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> um, but no, because I just think, I don't know, I just... I'm very skeptical about a lot of politicians not all of them but I'm saying you know
0: Well let's uh wrap it up here one more question I have for you what advice would you give to young men who especially are worried about the future of the country like what would what advice would you give them to be more active in public service and to help the country in the future
1: Well I you know I I've been a big fan of people who become eagle scouts I think it's <laughs> I think it's a uh I think it's a good training or whatever, you know, discipline and you know merit badges and all this kind of stuff and I I just think it you know I do think we want to form, you know, uh model citizens, right? In our in our with love for our country and you know and and uh whatever. Uh, so also I I think for people that are in school, right? I mean that, that actually study, you know, is study is kind of important, right? That you think about these things and and that you be well-read and, you know, that you be educated, that you not be ignorant of history, right? Uh, that's one of my fears about the millennials is that, you know, they don't, don't necessarily know much about history. Admittedly, I, it's kind of a hobby of mine, so I'm, you know, my, my favorite reading is like biographies and histories and stuff, but I just think it's actually kind of important because those who don't, remember the pastor kind of condemned to repeat it, right? It's like, you know, it's, you know, when, uh, I don't know, AOC criticized St. Damien of Molokai, right, who's this Belgian priest who gave his life basically taking care of lepers on, on, you know, an island of Hawaii, right, in the late 1800s. You know, she called him a white supremacist, and I'm saying that is so, like, it's just it, the combination of ignorance and arrogance that that is involved in making that statement. I mean, I can handle the ignorance or the arrogance, but both together is breathtaking, right? It's like, you know, it's, no, this is a guy who gave his life basically tending to, you know, native Hawaiian people who were lepers, right? And, and to the point where he gets leprosy himself and dies, right? This guy is... An incredible hero right um you know he's not a white supremacist you know I, it's just white supremacy doesn't have anything to do with that project right it's total. it's a total mismatch you know that's ridiculous I, I, you know so anyway i mean i'm not a big fan of white supremacy but i'm just you know, but for that reason i just think it's to call damien of molokai a white supremacist or for that matter Junipero Serra, who was, you know, canonized five years ago in Washington, I was there, right? Junipero Serra defended the rights of Native Americans against the Spanish colonial powers. I mean, he, you know, when they, I don't know, when they killed some Spanish uh, settlers, you know, he intervened to make sure that they were not killed, right, to, as punishment, right? Because he 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 really loved them and wanted to help them, right? and. So anyway, it's just, I just think history is important and for what it's worth. And uh, so if, if people can, you know, study and kind of learn stuff in school, and I know this is not the fashionable way to do school now. It's all about, you know, getting lattes and going to the gym and whatever, and, and you know, living, the you know, a beautiful life and, you know, being cool and everything. And, and I think that's all great. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> I <mean>, you know. <laughs> But, but I think also at some point, you know, you should probably, people should take their classes and their studies somewhat seriously, you know, it's like, you know, to get ready really so that you'll be able to meet the challenges that you're going to face, you know, in some ways, I think you all live in a world that's much more complicated than the world I grew up in, right? I I don't know. So. um,
0: Well, good. Dwight, this has been uh, a pleasure and uh, I've really enjoyed it. Likewise,
1: Vince.
0: Well, I good. hope you censor it, though. I mean, <laughs> hey, I'm not, I'm not controlled by anybody. So I see. Okay, all right. Well, okay. <laughs> well good. This has been a blo- uh, a pleasure, and I ho- hope we can do it again in the future.
1: I hope so too, Vince. Great. Take care. Awesome.
0: That was my guest, Dwight Duncan, who's a constitutional law professor at UMass Dartmouth School of Law. Dwight has had an impressive career writing both for the Supreme Court and working as a private attorney. I hope you enjoyed this episode and got something out of it as I did. The date of this recording was the day before Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. She was a valued member of the Supreme Court for many years, and we pray for her family in this time. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you back here for the next one.